today is from Exodus chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This is God's word. Thank you, Sandy. And um, as you were reading about the Israelites being thirsty, I actually realized I'm kind of thirsty and I didn't bring any water up here. So would someone mind grabbing me some water? Thank you, Mike. That's the first. Let's pray. Lord, pray that by this, your inspired word, you would uh, illuminate, diagnose, um, and, and help us to see what is in our hearts, so that we can better align with you in repentance and in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few months ago, 
um, when I probably should have been doing something else, I saw a video on YouTube um, called, it was called something like Stupid People in Boats, or People Doing Stupid Things in Boats. And who can resist that? <laughs> a title, right? And in the first clip, you see this, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 foot motorboat trying to get out of a harbor into the ocean, and uh, the, the surf, the waves are ginormous. Probably like six foot swells up and down, and this poor little boat is being tossed around, and yet the people are foolishly continuing on. Waves are breaking over the bow. I think they're holding beers in their hand and you know, partying it up. Well, this one wave comes over the bow and sweeps a woman overboard. She's not wearing a life jacket. <coughs> Her head pops out of the water, and she's struggling to swim. But then, her right hand shoots up out of the water. She's swimming with one arm, and you realize she's trying to save her phone. <laughs> so she's about to drown, and she's worried about her iPhone 13, or whatever. You know? um, she has two, two, two problems, right? She had a threat on her life, and she had a threat against her phone, and she shows the wrong threat to prioritize. Um, as Christians, the reason I'm telling you that is because as Christians, sometimes we are focused on the wrong threats, on the wrong dangers. You know, we face a world full of, full of dangers to us and to our faith. Um, but only one of them can put us in true spiritual peril. Only one. And we must recognize that danger, that threat, when we see it, so that we can seek God's help, so that we can be armed in the right way against it. And here in Exodus chapter 17, um, we have these two stories that don't seem like they have a lot in common. In one, the Israelites are in the desert, they need water, God provides water, they grumble against Moses. In the second, an enemy tribe attacks them, and Joshua leads a defense against them. Moses holds up his hands, implying God's help on the battle, and they are victorious. So, on the surface, they don't appear to have a lot in common, but they actually have several features in the stories that are similar. In the first case, uh, in both, they, have, they, they face a threat. In the first story, they have no water. They're thirsty. They have nothing to drink. That's, a, that's an existential threat for them. You need water to survive. In the second story, they face an existential threat of this army attacking them. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, we know that during that, that event, the Amalekites came and were actually picking off the stragglers and the weakest of the community at the back of the group. So they were threatened. Okay, the second similarity is that in both stories, Moses' staff features prominently in God's solution to the problem, right? In the first, he, God tells him to hit the rock, and water gushes out of a rock. I mean, how much more miraculous can you get than that? And then in the second, Moses holds up his staff, and the staff symbolizes God's power and God's enabling for them to overcome. 
Second similarity. Third similarity <coughs> is that, did you notice at the end of both of these little stories, something gets named? In the first one, it said they named that place Masa and Meribah, which are the Hebrew words for quarreling, or sorry, testing and quarreling. So that is what is memorialized by that account. The testing and the quarreling that the Israelites did. In the second story, <coughs> Moses builds an altar after the victory, and he names it, The Lord is my banner, which is talking about God's, um, uh, God's victory, like a, a banner over a military, a victorious military. So there are these similarities, but... There's also a big difference, one big difference between these two events. And that difference is where I want to preach into today. Because that thing shows us the true threat that we all face. The true threat that Israel faced and the true threat that, that we face and the church faces today. So let's look at these stories in a little more detail one by one. And we'll go from there. So starting in chapter 17, verse 1, we read that the, the Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. Now that has nothing to do with the English word sin. That's related to the Hebrew word Sinai, and it just happens to be the same as the word sin. Okay, there's no like, there's no like symbolism in that. But they were in a sinful place, weren't they? Because when they run out of water... The first thing they do is quarrel with Moses. And the Hebrew there is, is more like they lodged a, 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 a lawsuit against him. Like, like, you've let us down. And, and why did you, they say, why did you lead us out into the, the wilderness to let us and our livestock die of thirst? They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're accusing, they're quarreling. And they're testing God. They're testing God. What does it mean that they're testing God? That's what, the, that's what Moses named the place, testing. They weren't saying to God, they weren't saying, we trust you, help us. They're saying, we won't trust you until you prove yourself. Until you make something happen. Uh, we saw the same exact thing happen in chapter 15 and 16, didn't we? These people are not learning the lesson. So God is testing them again to see if they will pass the test and trust Him. But they don't. So they're grumbling, they're complaining, <clears throat> and yet God provides. He tells Moses, take your staff, go and take some of the elders and go stand before the rock. Uh, I think this was part of the rock, like a cliff of Mount Sinai. Um, and interestingly, it says, I will stand there with you. In verse 6, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Horeb, Sinai, same thing. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. God made water come out of a rock for his grumbling people. He provided for them streams in the desert. There's another account, by the way, in Numbers, 
referring to a, a different event with a lot of similarities to this one, but let's not get these confused. God told Moses to strike the rock in this case. Okay. So God provided. So the people had a problem. They, they had no water. This was a threat to their very lives. Um, they grumbled, they complained, they argued, and yet God provided. Okay, the second threat, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. The Amalekites were this, this warlike, nomadic tribe. Uh, they would actually sustain the, themselves by raiding other people and stealing stuff. And you know, imagine like the Vikings or something. The Vikings of the ancient Near East. Um, they were a threat to the people of Israel. And so, um, what happens when they face this threat? A totally different reaction. Instead of grumbling and arguing and complaining, they work together. Right? Joshua marshals the troops. Moses stands on the hilltop, stretching out his arms. Aaron and Ben, hold, uh, not Ben, Aaron and Hur, Thinking of Ben Hur. <laughs> Different Hur. Aaron, his brother, and Hur, his friend, hold up his arms. It, it's a picture of the people working together. The people coming together around this, uh, uh, coming together in the face of an external threat. This other people attacking them. And sure enough, God gives them the victory. God as long as Moses are holding, is holding his hands up, God um, lets the Israelites win and defeat their enemies. Now, what is that showing us? It's showing us that God is able to... Uh, this is the first, the first battle that is ever recorded uh, between Israel and another nation or tribe or country. The first conflict with another people. There will be many, many more battles in Israel's future. You read uh, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So many battles like this. And every time the Israelites trust God, He is faithful. So what is the big difference between these two stories? In the second, the threat is external to them. It's an external threat. It's outside them. There's other people attacking them. In the first, the true threat is internal. You see, the real problem in the first story is not their lack of water. God has shown himself already, again and again, able to provide miraculously. The real threat comes with their quarreling and bickering and arguing and accusing and their hard hearts. They're testing God. That is the true threat here. That's the true threat. It's an internal threat. It's inside them. Now, only one of these two stories, have a great game, Ava. Only one of these two stories is picked up in the Bible and in the New Testament, the Old and the New Testament, to serve as a warning for God's people. Can you guess which one it is? The first. That the New Testament.
Testament never says, remember how when you fought the Amalekites, Moses held up his hand, and therefore fight your enemies and overcome? No. But in Psalm 95, as we read this morning, it said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As you did at the place of testing at the waters of Meribah in that and then in Hebrews chapter 3, the New Testament author uses that and applies it to our following Jesus. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Interesting because in in that story they were quarreling and fighting, but he says here, encourage one another. That's the opposite. And don't have hard hearts, he's saying. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, he quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Okay, this, this is a truth that we have to understand. In all of the story of the people of God in the Bible, no external threat, no enemy, no evil power has ever been able to overcome the people of God. It has only and always been people's hearts. The reason Israel at times lost battles and was defeated and then finally was taken into exile in Babylon was not because the enemy was stronger than them. It was because they were sinful and unbelieving and did not trust God. That is the one threat to the people of God, and it exists today as well. It exists today as well. How does this apply? How can we take this and overlay it on our experience today? <clears throat> there are many around us who stir up fear about threats outside the church. They say, the biggest problem facing the church today is the progressive politicians or or corporations, or the media, or the LGBTQ community, or Muslims, or demons and evil spirits, or whatever you fill in the blank. Those are all external things out there. What we don't hear people saying is the greatest threat to the church today is the hearts of people in the church. It's us. We have the power to, we have the choice to obey God and trust Him, or to harden our hearts, to quarrel, to fight, to blame, to test God. That, that is the biggest threat to us. You know, Jesus, Jesus does the impossible. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And that has been true throughout history. God, Jesus has continued to build his kingdom, build his church. And the problems, the downfall of churches has always come from within. From our lack of trust, from our unfaithfulness, from our uh, greed, from our abuse of others, from our sinfulness, whatever. God, it says, look, it says in chapter 17, verse 16, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Um, it is true that God is at war with the enemies of God's people. But what happens when God's people go to war against him? That's when there's a problem. Not because their enemies are too great for God to handle, but because if we are at war with God, we're, we have no safety, no protection. <clears throat> Just as an illustration, <clears throat> if you have a healthy immune system, a healthy body, um, the human body can handle so many, you know, every hour, every day, we're fighting off uh, infections and viruses and things that would want to invade our cells and kill us. And if we have a healthy immune system, those are no problem. Even doctors and, and people, you know, hospital um, staff, all they do is help your body's immune system be able to overpower whatever is inside you. Right? They might have to remove a tumor, they might have to uh, give you some drugs to boost your immune system or help in that fight. But if you have no immune system, the, the battle is, worth, is, is, is pointless, right? And it's the same principle here. External threats, no big deal. Internal threats, be careful. Don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Um, so, here, here's a heart check that you can do today, right now. <clears throat> do you have any signs of hardness in your heart? Um, one is, do you, the first thing, do you fall into grumbling instead of gratitude? What's your default position? When life goes bad, when, when things happen, do you thank God for what he has done and for what he's able to do, or do you grumble and complain and live as a functional atheist? I confess to you that I, and Meg knows this, I am a recovering grumbler. <laughs> I like to think I'm recovering. You'll have to ask Meg about that. Um, and I'm realizing just how dangerous that is. It's not just having a bad attitude. It's not just complaining. It reveals a, a hardness of heart. So do you go to grumbling or gratitude? Number two, do you have a pattern of testing God instead of trusting God? There are two um, accounts in the Gospels that illustrate the difference here. It doesn't mean that you have to have the strongest faith in the world all the time. But do you remember when, when the man came to Jesus 
with the son who had epilepsy and would, would see, have seizures and fall into the fire. Or maybe it was a demon confession. Um, Jesus said something like, do you believe I can heal your son? And do you remember what he said, the father said? I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. If you're having trouble trusting God, you can say those words. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Or you can be like the, the people in John chapter 6 who came to Jesus and said, show us a miracle to prove that you are who you say you are. You see the difference? How do you approach God? Do you say, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief? Or do you say, God, if you want me to trust you, you better do something. Two totally different postures. Two ways to handle your doubts, your uh, uncertainty in life. And then third, um, are you a quarreler or an encourager? When things get hard, do you tend to argue, blame, um, uh, divide from people, dig into your position, look for faults in others, or do you encourage others? As it said in Hebrews 13, you know, do not harden your hearts, but encourage each other daily. Are you a, a, an encourager or a quarreler? Those are things you can, you can kind of a scan you can run on yourself as a heart check. How, is your heart hard? And of, of course, this hasn't been said, but, but if you don't even believe in Jesus at all, it might be because you haven't heard the gospel, or it could be because your heart is hard. If your heart is hard, and you don't want to yield it to Jesus and to give it over to someone else. That is the, the biggest threat, is the internal threat. But I do want to leave you with some hope this morning. Um, I don't want you to walk out of here feeling like, like, oh, woe is me, there's no hope for me. Because to be honest, if you examine your heart, and I hope you do, you're going to find some stuff that's pretty ugly. So what do we do with that? How do we... How can we make sure we overcome this threat of, of unbelief and of hardness? And I, I think the answer is, is Jesus. Um, think about how Jesus, there are two ways this is true. Think about how Jesus retraced the steps of the people of Israel and did what they should have done. So, you remember, Jesus was baptized. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story. John baptized Jesus, and then the, the Spirit descended on him. And then, it says, the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days. Sound familiar? 40 years for Israel. To be tested. Okay, so back up. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years being tested by God. Right? Did they pass the test? No. They failed again and again. They had a few victories, but mostly failures. What about 
Jesus. When, when the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days, he fasted and the devil came to tempt him. Did he pass the test? With flying colors. He, he experienced way more temptation um, to sin than the Israelites did, and yet he didn't. He had um, every, you know, he had way more reason to grumble. Like, I'm the son of God, why should I be out here in the wilderness being tested and tempted? Just get this over with, right? But he didn't. He faithfully submitted to the test. He trusted God. He was perfectly loyal to God. So he did exactly, in a way, exactly what Israel did, except he succeeded where they failed. Right. Oh, and I forgot the parallel between baptism and the people coming through the sea. The people passed through the water and into the wilderness. Jesus was baptized, went to the wilderness. Okay. What did Jesus get for his perfect faithfulness to God? He got killed. He followed God so resolutely that he went to the cross. That's what the cross is about. It's about Jesus, although he did everything right that we had done wrong, he took the judgment for everything we have done wrong. He succeeded where we failed, and he died where we should have died. That's what the cross is. The early, um, the early church fathers, the early Christians who read Exodus 17 saw a really interesting picture of Jesus in this passage. Can you, can you think what it is? Focusing on the first half of the, the passage. They saw a symbol of Jesus in the rock. So what happened? The rock was struck, and out of it came living water. Jesus was struck, was killed for us, and out of his death comes fountains of living water for us, for sinners, for complaining people. And so, there's the hope. There's the hope. Jesus gives grace to the undeserving. And so we have every reason to uh, trust him, to be loyal to him, to have a soft Heart that is ready to do whatever he says. I want to close with the story behind that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Some of you may know this, but um, uh, there's a line in that song that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for that course above. That is one of the lines in, in the song we sing here that I can always sing and mean it. Because I know that I am prone to wander. I am prone to leave the God I love. And the, the author of that song knew that. He, um, his name was Robert Robinson. He grew up in a poor family in rural England in the 18th century. Um, as a teenager, he moved into London for an apprenticeship and fell into all the vices that the big city had to offer. Uh, but a few years later, after hearing a preacher named George Whitfield 
Robert Robinson converted to Christ and, and became a Christian, and shortly thereafter he entered the ministry and served for many decades faithfully among the poor of England. Um, but near the end of his life, things took a turn, and, and God led him into a, a wilderness, so to speak. He had financial trouble. Um, his many friends deserted him. He lost his 17-year-old daughter, Julie. Um, and some say that in those years before he died, he drifted theologically from the truth. And he began to believe and to teach um, unorthodox things, like Unitarianism. Uh, some say he, he went off the rails morally and had a bunch of moral failures. But anyway... Um, he died at age 54, a broken man. Um, but before he died, I'll read the account of this story that I found on the web this week. It's very short. Um, one morning he was riding a carriage in Paris with a Parisian socialite who had rec recently been converted to Christ. She was interested in his opinion on some poetry she was reading. Come now, fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never failing, call for hymns and loudest praise. When she looked up from her reading, she noticed Robinson was crying. She asked him what he thought of it. What do I think of it? He asked in a broken voice. I wrote it. But now I've drifted away from him and can't find my way back. But don't you see, the woman said gently, the way back is written here in the third line of your poem. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Those streams are flowing even here in Paris tonight. That night, Robinson recommitted his life to Christ. He may have wandered, but he had a soft heart. And God saved him. Father, thank you that you are able to make water come out of the rock, and you are able to bring streams of living water out of hard hearts. Thank you uh, for Jesus, who uh, was struck and died in our place, and is able to hold us fast and keep us close to himself. We ask that we would have not sinful, unbelieving hearts, but um, good and pure, believing hearts in you. We need your help for that, Lord. For anyone here this morning who um, is in a place of wandering from you, or rebellion against you, or uh, ungodly quarreling and conflict with others, I pray that you would bring them back. Let your living water flow into them. And for all of us today, Lord, we pray that you would uh, just keep giving us a gift of soft hearts. Uh, knowing that no external threat is too great for you. Uh, but that we 
to be, uh, our hearts need to be soft in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.